0: The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne Read by Mary Woods Copyright 2008 Loudlit.org Chapter 20 The Minister in a Maze As the minister departed in advance of Hester Prynne and Little Pearl, he threw a backward glance, half expecting that he should discover only some faintly traced features or outline of the mother and the child slowly fading into the twilight of the woods. So great a vicissitude in his life could not at once be received as real. But there was Hester, clad in her gray robe, still standing beside the tree trunk, which some blast had overthrown a long antiquity ago and which time had ever since been covering with moss, so that these two fated ones, with earth's heaviest burden on them, might there sit down together and find a single hour's rest and solace. And there was Pearl, too, lightly dancing from the margin of the brook, now that the intrusive third person was gone, and taking her old place by her mother's side. So the minister had not fallen asleep and dreamed. In order to free his mind from this indistinctness and duplicity of impression, which vexed it with a strange disquietude, he recalled and more thoroughly defined the plans which Hester and himself had sketched for their departure. It had been determined between them that the old world with its crowds and cities offered them a more eligible shelter and concealment than the wilds of New England or all America, with its alternatives of an Indian wigwam, or the few settlements of Europeans scattered thinly along the seaboard. Not to speak of the clergyman's health, so inadequate to sustain the hardships of a forest life, his native gifts, his culture, and his entire development would secure him a home only in the midst of civilization and refinement. The higher the state, the more delicately adapted to it the man. In furtherance of this choice, it so happened that a ship lay in the harbor— one of those unquestionable cruisers, frequent at that day, which, without being absolutely outlaws of the deep, yet roamed over its surface with a remarkable irresponsibility of character. This vessel had recently arrived from the Spanish main, and within three days' time would sail for Bristol. Hester Prynne, whose vocation as a self-enlisted sister of charity had brought her acquainted with the captain and crew— could take upon herself to secure the passage of two individuals and a child, with all the secrecy which circumstances rendered more than desirable. The minister had inquired of Hester, with no little interest, the precise time at which the vessel might be expected to depart. It would probably be on the fourth day from the present. "'This is most fortunate,' he had then said to himself." Now, why the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale considered it so very fortunate, we hesitate to reveal. Nevertheless, to hold nothing back from the reader, it was because on the third day from the present he was to preach the election sermon, and as such an occasion formed an honorable epoch in the life of a New England clergyman, he could not have chanced upon a more suitable mode and time of terminating his professional career. At least they shall say of me, thought this exemplary man, that I leave no public duty unperformed or ill-performed. Sad indeed that an introspection so profound and acute as this poor minister's should be so miserably deceived. We have had, and may still have, worse things to tell of him, but none we apprehend so pitiably weak. No evidence at once so slight and irrefragable of a subtle disease that had long since begun to eat into the real substance of his character. No man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. The excitement of Mr. Dimmesdale's feelings as he returned from his interview with Hester lent him unaccustomed physical energy and hurried him townward at a rapid pace— the pathway among the woods seemed wilder, more uncouth with its rude natural obstacles, and less trodden by the foot of man, than he remembered it on his outward journey. But he leaped across the plashy places, thrust himself through the clinging underbrush, climbed the ascent, plunged into the hollow, and overcame in short all the difficulties of the track with an unweariable activity that astonished him he could not but recall how feebly and with what frequent pauses for breath he had toiled over the same ground only two days before. As he drew near the town, he took an impression of change from the series of familiar objects that presented themselves. It seemed not yesterday, not one, not two, but many days, or even years ago since he had quitted them. There indeed was each former trace of the street, as he remembered it, and all the peculiarities of the houses, with the due multitude of gable peaks, and a weathercock at every point where his memory suggested one. Not the less, however, came this importunately obtrusive sense of change. The same was true as regarded the acquaintances whom he met, and all the well known shapes of human life about the little town. They looked neither older nor younger now. The beards of the aged were no whiter, nor could the creeping babe of yesterday walk on his feet today. It was impossible to describe in what respect they differed from the individuals on whom he had so recently bestowed a parting glance. And yet the minister's deepest sense seemed to inform him of their mutability. A similar impression struck him most remarkably as he passed under the walls of his own church. The edifice had so very strange— and yet so familiar an aspect, that Mr. Dimmesdale's mind vibrated between two ideas—either that he had seen it only in a dream hitherto, or that he was merely dreaming about it now. This phenomenon, in the various shapes which it assumed, indicated no external change, but so sudden and important a change in the spectator of the familiar scene that the intervening space of a single day had operated on his consciousness like the lapse of years. The minister's own will and Hester's will and the fate that grew between them had wrought this transformation. It was the same town as heretofore, but the same minister returned not from the forest. He might have said to the friends who greeted him, "'I am not the man for whom you take me,' I left him yonder in the forest, withdrawn into a secret dell by a mossy tree trunk and near a melancholy brook. Go seek your minister and see if his emaciated figure, his thin cheek, his white, heavy, pain-wrinkled brow, be not flung down there like a cast-off garment. His friends, no doubt, would still have insisted with him, Thou art thyself the man. But the error would have been their own, not his. Before Mr. Dimmesdale reached home, his inner man gave him other evidences of a revolution in the sphere of thought and feeling. In truth, nothing short of a total change of dynasty and moral code in that interior kingdom was adequate to account for the impulses now communicated to the unfortunate and startled minister. At every step he was incited to do some strange, wild, wicked thing or other, with a sense that it would be at once involuntary and intentional— in spite of himself, yet growing out of a profounder self than that which opposed the impulse. For instance, he met one of his own deacons. The good old man addressed him with the paternal affection and patriarchal privilege which his venerable age, his upright and holy character, and his station in the church entitled him to use, and, conjoined with this, the deep, almost worshipping respect which the minister's professional and private claims alike demanded. Never was there a more beautiful example of how the majesty of age and wisdom may comport with the obeisance and respect enjoined upon it, as from a lower social rank and inferior order of endowment, towards a higher. Now, during a conversation of some two or three moments between the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale and this excellent and hoary-bearded deacon— It was only by the most careful self-control that the former could refrain from uttering certain blasphemous suggestions that rose into his mind respecting the communion supper. He absolutely trembled and turned pale as ashes, lest his tongue should wag itself in utterance of these horrible matters, and plead his own consent for so doing without his having fairly given it. And even with this terror in his heart, he could hardly avoid laughing— to imagine how the sanctified old patriarchal deacon would have been petrified by his minister's impiety. Again, another incident of the same nature. Hurrying along the street, the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale encountered the eldest female member of his church, a most pious and exemplary old dame, poor, widowed, lonely, and with a heart as full of reminiscences about her dead husband and children and her dead friends of long ago, as a burial ground is full of storied gravestones. Yet all this, which would else have been such heavy sorrow, was made almost a solemn joy to her devout old soul by religious consolations and the truths of Scripture, wherewith she had fed herself continually for more than thirty years. And since Mr. Dimmesdale had taken her in charge, the good grandam's chief earthly comfort— which, unless it had been likewise a heavenly comfort, could have been none at all, was to meet her pastor, whether casually or of set purpose, and be refreshed with a word of warm, fragrant, heaven-breathing gospel truth from his beloved lips into her dulled but rapturously attentive ear. But on this occasion, up to the moment of putting his lips to the old woman's ear, Mr. Dimsdale, as the great enemy of souls would have it, Could recall no text of Scripture, nor aught else, except a brief, pithy, and as it then appeared to him, unanswerable argument against the immortality of the human soul. The instillment thereof into her mind would probably have caused this aged sister to drop down dead at once, as by the effect of an intensely poisonous infusion what he really did whisper, the minister could never afterwards recollect. There was, perhaps, a fortunate disorder in his utterance which failed to impart any distinct idea to the good widow's comprehension, or which providence interpreted after a method of its own. Assuredly, as the minister looked back, he beheld an expression of divine gratitude and ecstasy— that seemed like the shine of the celestial city on her face, so wrinkled and ashy pale. Again, a third instance, after parting from the old church member, he met the youngest sister of them all. It was a maiden newly won, and won by the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale's own sermon, on the Sabbath after his vigil, to barter the transitory pleasures of the world for the heavenly hope that was to assume brighter substance— as life grew dark around her, and which would gild the utter gloom with final glory. She was fair and pure as a lily that had bloomed in paradise. The minister knew well that he was himself enshrined within the stainless sanctity of her heart, which hung its snowy curtains about his image, imparting to religion the warmth of love and to love a religious purity. Satan, that afternoon, had surely led the poor young girl away from her mother's side and thrown her into the pathway of this sorely tempted, or, shall we not rather say, this lost and desperate man. As she drew nigh, the arch-fiend whispered him to condense into small compass and drop into her tender bosom a germ of evil that would be sure to blossom darkly soon and bear black fruit betimes. Such was his sense of power over this virgin soul, trusting him as she did, that the minister felt potent to blight all the field of innocence with but one wicked look, and develop all its opposite with but a word. So, with a mightier struggle than he had yet sustained, he held his Geneva cloak before his face and hurried onward, making no sign of recognition, and leaving the young sister to digest his rudeness as she might she ransacked her conscience, which was full of harmless little matters, like her pocket or her work bag, and took herself to task, poor thing, for a thousand imaginary faults, and went about her household duties with swollen eyelids the next morning. Before the minister had time to celebrate his victory over this last temptation, he was conscious of another impulse, more ludicrous and almost as horrible. It was, we blush to tell it, it was to stop short in the road and teach some very wicked words to a knot of little Puritan children who were playing there and had just begun to talk. Denying himself this freak as unworthy of his cloth, he met a drunken seaman, one of the ship's crew from the Spanish Main, and here, since he had so valiantly forborne all other wickedness, poor Mr. Dimmesdale longed at least to shake hands with the tarry blackguard, and recreate himself with a few improper jests such as dissolute sailors so abound with, and a volley of good, round, solid, satisfactory, and heaven-defying oaths. It was not so much a better principle as partly his natural good taste, and still more his buckrammed habit of clerical decorum that carried him safely through the latter crisis. "'What is it that haunts and tempts me thus?' cried the minister to himself at length, pausing in the street and striking his hand against his forehead." Am I mad, or am I given over utterly to the fiend? Did I make a contract with him in the forest, and sign it with my blood? And does he now summon me to its fulfillment, by suggesting the performance of every wickedness which his most foul imagination can conceive? At the moment when the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale thus communed with himself, and struck his forehead with his hand, old Mistress Hibbins, the reputed witch-lady, is said to have been passing by. She made a very grand appearance, having on a high headdress, a rich gown of velvet, and a rough done-up with the famous yellow starch, of which Anne Turner, her especial friend, had taught her the secret, before this last good lady had been hanged for Sir Thomas Overbury's murder. Whether the witch had read the minister's thoughts or no, she came to a full stop, looked shrewdly into his face, smiled craftily, and, though little given to converse with clergymen, began a conversation. "'So, reverend sir, you have made a visit into the forest,' observed the witch-lady, nodding her high headdress at him. "'The next time I pray you to allow me only a fair warning, and I shall be proud to bear you company,' without taking over much upon myself, my good word will go far, towards gaining any strange gentleman a fair reception from yonder potentate you wot of. "'I profess, madam,' answered the clergyman, with a grave obeisance, such as the lady's rank demanded, and his own good breeding made imperative, "'I profess on my conscience and character that I am utterly bewildered as touching the purport of your words.' I went not into the forest to seek a potentate, neither do I at any future time design a visit thither with a view to gaining the favor of such personage. My one sufficient object was to greet that pious friend of mine, the Apostle Eliot, and rejoice with him over the many precious souls he hath won from heathendom. Ha! <laughs> ha! cackled the old witch lady, still nodding her high headdress at the minister. Well, well, we must needs talk thus in the daytime; you carry it off like an old hand, but at midnight, and in the forest, we shall have other talk together." She passed on with her aged stateliness, but often turning back her head and smiling at him, like one willing to recognise a secret intimacy of connection. "Have I then sold myself?" thought the minister to the fiend whom, if men say true, this yellow-starched and velveted old hag has chosen for her prince and master. The wretched minister, he had made a bargain very like it. Tempted by a dream of happiness, he had yielded himself with deliberate choice, as he had never done before, to what he knew was deadly sin and the infectious poison of that sin had been thus rapidly diffused throughout his moral system. It had stupefied all blessed impulses and awakened into vivid life the whole brotherhood of bad ones. Scorn, bitterness, unprovoked malignity, gratuitous desire of ill, ridicule of whatever was good and holy, all awoke to tempt even while they frightened him. And his encounter with old mistress Hibbins— if it were a real incident, did but show its sympathy and fellowship with wicked mortals and the world of perverted spirits. He had by this time reached his dwelling on the edge of the burial ground, and hastening up the stairs, took refuge in his study. The minister was glad to have reached this shelter without first betraying himself to the world by any of those strange and wicked eccentricities to which he had been continually impelled while passing through the streets. He entered the accustomed room, and looked around him on its books, its windows, its fireplace, and the tapestried comfort of the walls, with the same perception of strangeness that had haunted him throughout his walk from the forest dell into the town and thitherward. Here he had studied and written, here gone through fast and vigil, and come forth half alive, here striven to pray, here borne a hundred thousand agonies— There was the Bible in its rich old Hebrew, with Moses and the prophets speaking to him, and God's voice through all. There on the table, with the inky pen beside it, was an unfinished sermon, with a sentence broken in the midst, where his thoughts had ceased to gush out upon the page two days before. He knew that it was himself, the thin and white-cheeked minister, who had done and suffered these things, and written thus far into the election sermon, but he seemed to stand apart and eye this former self with scornful pitying but half-envious curiosity. That self was gone, and another man had returned out of the forest, a wiser one, with a knowledge of hidden mysteries which the simplicity of the former never could have reached. A bitter kind of knowledge, that. While occupied with these reflections, a knock came at the door of the study, and the minister said, Come in, not wholly devoid of an idea that he might behold an evil spirit, and so he did. It was old Roger Chillingworth that entered. The minister stood white and speechless with one hand on the Hebrew scriptures and the other spread upon his breast. "Welcome home, Reverend sir," said the physician. "And how found you that godly man, the apostle Elliot?" "But methinks, dear sir," You look pale, as if the travel through the wilderness had been too sore for you. Will not my aid be requisite to put you in heart and strength to preach your election sermon? Nay, I think not so, rejoined the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale. My journey, and the sight of the holy apostle yonder, and the free air which I have breathed, have done me good after so long confinement in my study.' I think to need no more of your drugs, my kind physician, good though they be, and administered by a friendly hand. All this time, Roger Chillingworth was looking at the minister with the grave and intent regard of a physician towards his patient. But in spite of this outward show, the latter was almost convinced of the old man's knowledge, or at least his confident suspicion— with respect to his own interview with Esther Prynne. The physician knew then that in the minister's regard he was no longer a trusted friend, but his bitterest enemy. So much being known, it would appear natural that a part of it should be expressed. It is singular, however, how long a time often passes before words embody things, and with what security two persons who choose to avoid a certain subject may approach its very verge and retire without disturbing it. Thus the minister felt no apprehension that Roger Chillingworth would touch, in express words, upon the real position which they sustained towards one another. Yet did the physician, in his dark way, creep frightfully near the secret. "'Were it not better,' said he, "'that you use my poor skill to-night?' Verily, dear sir, we must take pains to make you strong and vigorous for this occasion of the election discourse. The people look for great things from you, apprehending that another year may come about and find their pastor gone. Yes, to another world, replied the minister with pious resignation. Heaven grant it be a better one, for in good sooth I hardly think to tarry with my flock through the flitting seasons of another year. "'But touching your medicine, kind sir, in my present frame of body, I need it not.' "'I joy to hear it,' answered the physician. "'It may be that my remedies, so long administered in vain, begin now to take due effect. "'Happy man were I, and well deserving of New England's gratitude, could I achieve this cure. "'I thank you from my heart, most watchful friend.' said the Reverend Mr. Dimsdale with a solemn smile. I thank you and can but requite your good deeds with my prayers. A good man's prayers are golden recompense, rejoined old Roger Chillingworth as he took his leave. Yea, they are the current gold coin of the new Jerusalem, with the king's own mint mark on them. Left alone, the minister summoned a servant of the house and requested food, which being set before him, he ate with ravenous appetite. Then, flinging the already written pages of the election sermon into the fire, he forthwith began another, which he wrote with such an impulsive flow of thought and emotion, that he fancied himself inspired, and only wondered that heaven should see fit to transmit the grand and solemn music of its oracles through so foul an organ-pipe as he. However, Leaving that mystery to solve itself, or go unsolved forever, he drove his task onward with earnest haste and ecstasy. Thus the night fled away, as if it were a winged steed, and he careering on it. Morning came and peeped, blushing, through the curtains, and at last sunrise threw a golden beam into the study and laid it right across the minister's bedazzled eyes. There he was, with the pen still between his fingers. And a vast, immeasurable tract of written space behind him. Thank you for downloading LoudLit.org's production of The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, performed by Mary Woods. This production was made possible by the generous support of Gordon W. Draper, Lois and Will Yates, Teresa Mahoney, and Todd Fedor mp3 downloads of the scarlet letter made possible by donations to loudlit.org thank you